The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we revel in the truth that we just sang, that you are a father to us, that you have a home, and that you've made a place for us there, all by your will and all by your doing. We revel in that, we say thank you for it, and then we ask you for still more, that while we are not yet fully, completely, safely there, we are still on journey through this world, we ask you to draw near to us and teach us and grow us. We are simultaneously somewhere already, but not yet there. We are simultaneously a people made new and a people who are being made new. And we thank you for the end and ask you for your presence and power on the journey to the end. So, Father, by your spirit, draw near and grow us up. Will you meet us right now? Draw our attention to your word, to you, and grow us up. Do us that good this morning. Be honored by us. Be honored by the fact that you make us what we are. And bless us with your presence and power, with relationship with you, with maturity in you. Make us a people like you for our good and for your honor. We trust ourselves to you and trust this time to you and ask you to move in it. We say thank you, Lord. Amen. The Russian author, Fyodor Dostoevsky, is one of those writers that a lot of people have heard of but don't know much about. Perhaps like me, you had to read something or another by him in some class in high school or college. But I think probably the main reason that most people know him and remain somewhat familiar with him is that he's quoted a lot. Little nuggets taken, gleaned from his works here and there get referenced and reused a lot in philosophy, a lot in theology. And they stick with us because when we read them, though we don't know anything about the context, don't know much about the man, the the, the quote, the the nugget that comes to us, it sticks with us because we tend to to read it, stop, and say, ouch. That's a little bit too much like us to be comfortable. Like this one. What do you know I'm going to quote him? It's from Dostoevsky's famous The Brothers Karamazov. Several lines, so I'll read it slowly. He writes... The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened that the more I hate men individually the more I love humanity. Ouch. Because that's us. That's the human condition. We are big lovers of humankind in the abstract at a safe distance. But put two people in a room together And take away the distractions. No TV or no Instagram. Or maybe keep the TV at only one remote. (laughs) 
put us there in the same room together for two days in a row, and the very presence of one will disturb the other, to use his word. The very presence of one restricts the freedom of the other. The two come close, and they become hostile. Is not that our experience? Even while in our minds we tell ourselves that we are great lovers of humankind, just not this one. The problem is this one. I'm a lover of people, just not that one. He, she's problematic. This is the human condition. This is who we are, fallen in sin in Adam. And it's at the core of what plagues the world. There is so much pain. If you draw on a flow chart, so much pain comes off of that. Everything miserable in the world comes off of that. Humanity is troubled on this front, and God, thank goodness, is out to change that in us and to make a new, fixed, united, loving community again like humanity was meant to be. That's what he's doing in Christ. That's what brings us to our passage for today, where God marks out for us a different path to walk than the one we often do in our humanness. A different path to walk as Christians. This passage this morning is the second half, second part of last week's sermon, the positive half this morning. It's paired with the negative from last week, verses 5 to 11. We saw there that we have been changed, so we, we are to not be what we aren't anymore. That was the negative half. We, we aren't to walk in idolatrous sexual sin, nor in community-destroying anger and hurtful speech. But not positively. What are we to be? Let's look at verses 12 to 14. I'm going to read them and then draw two observations, and the structure will be just like last week's. The first is the what. What are we to be now, positively, and then how. How does that come about? So this is just like last week, but now it's the positive half. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 14, and then I'll make two observations from it. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first, the, the what. What are we to be? What are we to be? The positive half matching last week's negative. The positive actually was already introduced. Remember last week, verse 10 we saw there that you have put on the new self, being renewed in knowledge after its creator. So, so there, the new self has already been introduced. That's something that has already happened to us. So we are that, and now we're looking at what are we to be, and it's fleshed out, verse 12, a command. Put on, then. And we get another list. Last week we saw two lists of sins. This is a list not of sins, but of virtues. And like the other list, it's not exhaustive. But it's also not random. It's a list of virtues that are opposite to the sins that we saw up in verses 8 and 9. And likewise, it's oppositely helpful where the sin list would be hurtful to the type of community that God has made us to be. We are one people united in Christ, as verse 11 finished off last week. We are, we are, not, we are one people united, and so we are not to, to act like or be like. We are separated along all these cultural, religious community standing sort of, of lines. We are to be one in Christ, one standing on the foundation of Christ, with Christ at the core, Christ draped over us like an umbrella. There is a unity that has become, and therefore then, verse 12, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Five words there. All attitudes that are critical for the body life of the church. Compassion and kindness. Very similar words. It's about a tender-hearted, merciful concern for the other in need. Com 
compassion, kindness. Humility. An attitude of lowliness instead of pride. Of rightly considering oneself in relation to the proper consideration of God and the proper consideration of others. So it's not just that you never think about yourself, but you think about yourself rightly in relationship. Who am I in relationship to God? And who am I in relationship to others? And his and their concerns before my own. Humility. Meekness, instead of being brash or abrasive or domineering. Meek. Patient. A demeanor that's not pushy or demanding, but is willing to wait, and, and to wait well. So not just wait, tapping your foot, not just wait, but to wait at peace. So there's a lot of overlap in these five words. And, and really, they, they all kind of hang together. You can't really imagine somebody who is, who is truly patient but not meek or who is compassionate but not kind. I mean, there's, there's a lot of overlap in the words, and they all kind of belong together. And frankly, defining them each distinct and, and separate from the other is pretty hard and not actually necessary. Because you see this list and, and you understand it. You, you can see what the picture is, the picture of what kind of a person it's painting and not painting. We understand it. If we roll them all together and make a package out of this, the person here would be concerned for others, attentive to them and their needs and their weaknesses, not using them, but seeking to help them. In other words, it would be the image of God in you. lived out, renewed in you, like up in verse 10, live, renewed in you and then lived out, expressed. But it's the image of God renewed in you, and I want to emphasize in you because what he's really getting at here is a heart attitude, an, an internal heart attitude, not just something put on the outside. When he, when he says for instance, be, be putting on compassion. He doesn't mean acting like a compassionate person would act. Be compassionate. Be that. Become that in here. Same for, for humility. Don't act like humble people act. Become humble. He's about something in, internal, about change happening in us. But if change actually happens in us, then of, then of course it will come out. It has to come out. It has to be expressed. And so what would it look like when some other person draws up close and it's me and that other one in this room for two days? What, what would it look like when we are with, around, up close another person? What does it look like? Well, verse 13 is really helpful in this. Because he gives us a couple of phrases here that give us the context in which these words would be expressed. So if we're thinking about people abstractly out there and think about the words, compassionate, meek, humble, yeah, okay, I can see that. I, I love people. I am I'm compassionate. I'm growing in humility. Uh-huh. Okay, so let's bring it up close. What would that look like? Two phrases here. Put on compassion and kindness and patience, etc., Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. These words, these five words here, they come to life as we live up close with people in community who are flawed people, who are fallen people, who are different people. Verse 11's variety. We're going to live up close, bearing with and forgiving. Bearing with. Patiently enduring as you linger too long over your dinner, or I struggle with the sniffles, or any other of a whole list of differences. This phrase implies, assumes, some sort of situation in which someone, let's say you, you're, you're thinking that in some way or another, you're on, on top of the situation. You're ahead. You, you get it. 
you're quicker, you're, you're right. In some way, someone's on top, and the one on the bottom is burdening me, restricting my freedom, cramping my style, slowing me down, holding me back. So it assumes a, a situation like this. Somebody doesn't get it, and somebody does, and Paul is not arguing that fact. He's not saying, no, in fact, you don't get it granted. Okay, you get it. Granted. This other one's cramping your style. Uh-huh, okay, great. Bear with that person. Put up with him. But not like that phrase often sounds. Put up with it sounds like suck it up and just deal. No, no. Bear up patiently. Wait and wait well. Compassionately and kindly. Bear with humbly and meekly, with no contempt and no rolling of the eyes and no tapping of the foot, sort of impatience. You come low, down to that other. You see the picture here. You see, you see what's being painted. He is not telling you that you're wrong, and he's not telling you to solve the difference. In the middle of the difference. And it's exactly like you think it is, let's say. Bear with. Patiently and meekly and compassionately. Humbly coming low to this person. Bear with in the difference. And that, that may become the attitude in which you can address the difference and solve the problem. And sure, it may, but it may never. It may never. Bear with. And if a complaint arises, a grievance, if by chance you are sinned against, and there is a chance that will happen, there is a 100% chance that that will happen, if, when that happens, forgiving one another. So this goes a step beyond just differences, just I want to watch sports and you want to watch a, a movie. It goes beyond difference. It goes to sin. Complaint, grievance. Forgiveness doesn't make any sense where there hasn't been any offense or where the offense has already been judged and rectified. The assumption is that Paul's talking to me or to you and we sit in this spot of saying, I have been wounded. I have been sinned against. I have been aggrieved. And he says, I know. And it hasn't been made right. I know. Forgive. That is... Not, I know, it's not been written right, so step into it and make it right. No. Forgive. Which is a recognition of a wrong and a decision to pay the price for that wrong yourself. You have wronged me, and I have been wounded by that. And it'll stop right there. I'll just take the blow myself and say, I forgive you. I will not demand payment from you. I will not hold you under condemnation and demand justice from you at your expense to me. Now, I guess a few really, really, really important qualifiers. Because... Forgiveness does sometimes allow or even demand some further action. You may need to act. You may tell, you need to tell someone about whatever's happened here. You may need to do something that changes the situation in which the offense happened. 
Forgiveness does not mean that you don't judge the action as sin and wrong. It means given that it's sin and wrong, I will not condemn you personally. I will release you from condemnation. Now the action may need to be addressed. This is, it's really important that we get this clear because sometimes people hear this from somebody behind a pulpit and you are sitting in the middle of great and grievous affliction that somebody is doing to you and you hear it like, well, the pastor just said I'm just supposed to like let it go and forgive him and take another blow and another and another because I'm supposed to forgive. Hear this, please, hear this, hear this. You're supposed to forgive in heart the person. And you may need to, from that spot right there, confront the action and seek change. Or you may, let, let, you may be able to let love cover that over. I don't know because I don't know what you're facing. But what's important is that you not hear the command to forgive means I just take another. I have to. Now maybe you have to bring it out. We're talking about the attitude of heart towards an offender, which is at the very core of how Jesus can tell us to forgive even our enemies. We've got to call it sin. We've got to call it wrong. But we can forgive people personally in the heart. We're talking about a heart attitude. It's not an attitude of judgmentalism and condemnation, but of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness that forgives offense against me personally. Bearing with and forgiving, and above all, love. Look at verse 14. Because in English, we've got to reckon with something here. Because in English, we, have, we almost have to write verse 14 as a separate sentence. Because it's a really long run-on sentence, and we've got to make some sense of it in, in English. But really, it is a really big, long run-on sentence. And verse 14 is the last word of the five-word list, which is why most of our English translations repeat, put on. But it's separated out to give it a little extra. Because above all, love. Love's the last word. Above all, First and foremost, put on love because love is what binds together the people of God. Love does not seek to do good to self, but it considers the other as a person in need and seeks to help give what is needed to do good to the other. Just this week, Someone gave me a book recently, a very, really short book written by one Christian and really kind of focuses on two Christians, Romanians in prison under the communists. And one of the themes under the, the brutal, life-threatening, life-taking hand of a communist captor, one of the themes being driven through that book is Love. Love that one. How do you love that one? Well, it's kind of teased out and worked on in the book a little bit. But above all, to love, to consider the other as a person in need and to see beyond the affliction coming from, but to forgive. And to see beyond the affliction coming from and to see behind it as a person who is in need and I, loving you, will seek to be one who meets your need.
And the challenging part of all this, as if this all isn't challenging enough, I mean, do you feel like a little challenged here? I like think about these words, and I think about bearing with people in differences, and I think about forgiving. By the time I'm at love, I'm about done, you know? I'm about like this. My goodness. But then, the challenging part is that he's not just talking about how do you deal with somebody who may imprison you and afflict you. He's not just talking about when you get stuck in the same room with somebody, the best way to deal with them is to love them. It's love that binds everything, and really, if you trace this all through, he's talking about the people, everyone. It's love that binds everyone in the body of Christ together. So put on love. What he's getting at actually is really it's equivalent to the command, be bound together. How? By putting on love. That is compassion, meekness, humility. What I'm after here is you all bound together and that's why I command love. And that's why I command compassion and meekness and humility. Not because I, I really want those individual characteristics, but because those are all a piece of what I really want. You all bound together as a united one single people under Christ, on Christ, in Christ, beneath Christ, in Him, one people, bound all together. So love, the commander actually tells me, oh my word, tells me to pursue, not just react, That kills me in my introverted, self-focused self. That kills me. But it's there. Love pursues that other person. Love seeks to be bound together. So put on love and forgive and bear with patiently. Because this is the new humanity. What God calls us to be in Christ. A single people, united, one. All sitting around his table with him and all the rest of his people. He doesn't make a hundred tables. He's got a single table. So it would probably be good for us to think through our relationships in the body and start with those closest to you. If you're married, start with your spouse. If you have a family, kids and parents, close friends, those you spend a lot of time with, start there. And also, just in case, include the one that you don't spend any time with at all. Because it might be that the reason you don't spend any time with that one at all is that you're avoiding him. Maybe. Now, we can't all spend all kinds of time with everybody. There's too many people. But maybe you don't spend any time with that one because the rubber's met the road once and it bounced and you don't want to go there again. Could be. Just could be. So think through your relationships in the body, particularly with those closest to you. Do you pursue in love? Are you forgiving? Are you bearing with compassionately and humbly and meekly. Five words lived out in two contexts, but really, we could put it all very simply, the greatest of these is love. That's pretty easy to understand. And it kills me because it's impossible. It just kills me. And so when, when, I, when I read this, I am right away instinctively saying, now, the Dostoevsky stuff, I really get that because now I feel it. And I feel like I can't be this and I want to know how. Well, that's the second observation. How can this be? So here it is, expressed again as a question just like last week. How do we get there? How do we get there? God does, in, in fact, in 
expect us to get there. It's his command. It's his law to us. Of course, we want to be a church like this because it's so beautiful and so attractive, but we're challenged by it. But it's his law. It's his command to us, and we must watch ourselves right here, right now, that we not take the list of his law. All that I've just expressed is just law which is good, the law of God is good, but if you, if you take it just like that, it's just law, and if you deliver that directly over to your own self-will and discipline and say, fill the bill, you'll fail. Can't be, you'll fail. God never meant it like that. So what does he mean? How do we get there? Maybe a better way of asking it is, how does God intend to get us there? How does God intend... And here, I need to bring in something I talked about last week because though many of us were here last week, not everybody was, and you need to remember this because it fits right here. It's all part of the same flow. He's using a clothing analogy. Put off, put on. Change clothes, put off one thing, put on another. But because sometimes that sounds rather external to us, I think another better way for us to think about it, especially today, is to think about it like computer, hardware, devices with an operating system. I talked about this last week, so I'm repeating myself for most of us, I know. We are a device, a computer, an iPad, a phone, whatever. And in making us new, God has put into us a new operating system so that that device now functions differently. It's a new operating system being renewed in the image of its creator, being updated regularly when connected to the internet, when connected to God. So he pushes updates to us that change us, that change us so that we operate differently. That's how God works in us to give us the power, to give us the capability to do what he commands. He wants to push updates into us that renew us. So what's he pushing into us? What does he push into us? What are the updates? What's the info that he's wanting to download? Not better practices. Vision. And you can tell because what Paul does. Laced around the commands last week and again this week, Paul does not lace around them practices. But instead, he tries to fill our mind with beauty and glory, truth. So look at verse 12. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones. This is who we are, who you are, Christian. God's chosen one. God's elect That's the word there. God has a people that he has chosen. That he has chosen. We didn't elect ourselves. It's God's chosen one. It's Colossian church, us, believers, Christians. Clearly that's who he's talking about, what he means. So we see it right there. And there's a whole, whole, whole bunch in that word. We can scratch the surface, but there is much importance in this little term, this little offhand way of describing Christians. He doesn't just say, put on then as Christians. He's using a different way to describe us. And this tells you all you need to know about how you became a Christian. Before becoming a Christian, if you, if you can look at it, I don't know how it would look for you, but if you look at timeline, I suppose, before becoming a Christian, what it looks like is, there's the issues all laid out in front of me. I, I hear, I, I, I read, I see, that's who the Bible says I am, that's what the Bible says my problem is, that's what the Bible says God is, and that's what the Bible says God's doing about my problem. And, and okay, I hear and I understand and I see the cross and I understand the message. It's all in front of me and I, I hear it, I read it, I surrender to it and I trust Jesus and I trust his cross, his cross alone for forgiveness of my sin. And I'm brought into God's family. 
It's all in front of me. I see it. I embrace it, and I step into it. And if you, and this morning, if, I got to say to you, if, if you're not yet a Christian, that's how it looks to you, and that's the offer I'm laying in front of you, right in front of you. Please look. Here's what the Bible says you are. Someone fallen in sin who, who needs to be forgiven, and God has provided Jesus as a Savior. His cross pays for that. See it, embrace him, step into it, and believe. It's right in front of you. There's the offer, the invitation. However, this description, God's elect, God's chosen ones, puts us on the other side of that, so to speak, looking backwards at it now. Looking at the same moment in hindsight. Why did I hear that, looking back now? Why did I hear that? And why did I believe and surrender myself to Christ while my friend or my neighbor or my relative heard it too and didn't? Why did I become united with Christ and she didn't? Why me? And the answer, this word, this phrase tells us, the answer to that why has nothing whatsoever to do with you. So you have nothing to boast about and everything to be humbled about everything to be thankful for. Why you? The answer is because God chose you. You were one of his chosen ones. No Christian can ever say or should ever think, why me? I'm more insightful. I understood the issues at stake. I'm more wise. So I grasped it all. I'm more humble. I was willing to look outside of myself. I'm more trusting. I was more willing to depend on Jesus. I'm more ethical and moral and obedient and good and thrifty and brave, clean and reverent. Why me? Well, because of me. Because I'm, you know, a little bit more. And therefore, I turned to him and I listened and I chose him. Not at all. While we were still dead in Adam not physically dead, spiritually dead in Adam. Just like everyone else on earth, God chose a people, you. We didn't realize that looking forward, you can't. All you can see looking forward is, is there's, there's the issues in front of me, think about them, and then answer the call and the promise, if you trust, you will be saved. So we're, we're looking backwards and we realize, oh, that's why. Because of the kindness and the love and the grace and the mercy of God, not because of anything in my wisdom and capabilities. It's all about him. I was in Adam. We were all in Adam. And in Adam, Romans 8, you may remember this, Romans 8 tells us what we were like in Adam in the flesh unable and unwilling to please God. We didn't choose him. He chose us. Paul lays this out in front of this church and doesn't explain any of that because he assumes they already know it. He just reminds them. This, this is what I'm trying to get at is this is bread and butter, fundamental, foundational Christianity that Paul assumes the church knows and he's just reminding them of. You were a person apart from him and God himself chose you. And that's why you believed. Because, phrase restates it, because you were a set-apart one, beloved Holy. We sometimes read the word holy and we, and we think it's about, about moral purity. That, that's a piece of it because the core of the word is about distinct, set apart from, different. You were chosen by God. That is, set apart 
and be loved, showered with the love of God, set apart, pulled out from, made distinct from the world and showered in God's love. The decision of God to choose you to be his own and to include you in Christ is an, is an act of pure, sovereign, overwhelming, gracious love that neither you nor I deserved or earned or merited in any way whatsoever, not 1% of it, not 1% of 1% of it. This is you. And this is glorious. Chosen, set apart, and beloved. You were a rebel through and through, and so God indeed had a complaint against you. But because he had chosen you, he sent Christ to come get you. And he sent his son to the cross to remove off of you that complaint to forgive you. To cleanse off of you, to wipe off of you, to take away from you that which was barrier between him and his beloved, you. In Christ crucified, the astonishing statement in verse 13 is made true. The Lord has forgiven you. Of what? Everything. Everything. And so now there is no condemnation from God towards you. Christian, you are chosen and set apart and beloved and forgiven, forgiven forgiven of everything, graciously, mercifully, forever. There is no condemnation towards you. There is no harshness towards you. There is no lording over you. There is no impatience towards you. May your mind and your heart be renewed, be, be updated by this glorious, releasing, humbling, and thanksgiving, producing truth. That you are in Christ and a member of his family, a daughter, a son of his, by his sovereign choice and action. This is a God who is good, who is gracious, and who is love. God Almighty created all that is and sustains it all by His power and came in pursuit of you, bearing with you in your slowness and in your recalcitrance. Still. He is a sovereign, creating, sustaining Savior who is so meek as not to break the bruised reed or to Sniff out the smoldering flax. Illusion from the Old Testament. A bruised reed, that's you. A bruised reed, a reed is a plant that stands up and has a, has a stem that's very vulnerable. And bruised is just about to, if you hit it hard, it's going to fall over. It's just bruised. And this Savior, this sovereign creator God comes alongside of you and just holds up that stem. He doesn't knock it over. He's not, he's not so lording and so hard and so almighty that he's not tender and careful and he sees the, the smoldering flax, the wick of a, of a lamp where there's just no oil and it's just about to burn out. Let's get it over with. No. Never. He puts in more oil to give real true light and to cause you to burn. How compassionate and kind and how patient and forbearing, how forgiving, how loving. Beloved, this is your God, and this is how he is towards you. Set your mind on this. Fill your mind with this. May God Almighty press this update into you and cause you to see yourself as one of his by his choice and power and sustaining grace. And to see him as a glorious God who will never leave you nor forsake you. 
May the Spirit update your mind with this and renew you and change you. Updated, filled with, moved by this, that is how God means to then get us to the first point. I love this passage. I've preached this passage at a bunch of weddings. I'm not sure who's here. Maybe at your wedding. <laughs> I'm not sure. I've preached this passage at a bunch of weddings, shorter with a different tone. But the first time I did, the first time I preached this passage at a wedding, wedding sermons are very odd. Because you're standing here, and there are two other people standing right here, and you're talking to everybody else out where you're seated. So you're talking to people who you try not to spit on them. And you're talking about them and also about all of them out there. So they're very odd, dynamic-wise. But the first time, the, fir the first wedding I ever officiated at, not here, somewhere else, I preached this passage. Why? Before I tell you how it went, why? Follow the argument. Why? Because I'm talking to people who are going to live in the same room with each other, not for just for two days, but forever. And who are immediately going to find, this is the best of all men, and I hate him. <laughs> right? They're about right quick. I mean, there's going to be like a couple weeks of honeymoon, and then reality's going to set in. And they're going to find Dostoevsky was right. Oh my goodness, what have I done? Then they're going to have to bear with and forgive and be compassionate. And I don't want to succumb to the folly of just delivering that over to their self-will and saying, so become compassionate and be kind and forgive. Because they'll get divorced. That won't work. I hope, the reason I'm preaching this, I hope, and, and think this through, this, this is for you too, I hope that what's going to happen as we talk about a passage is that God is going to reach into them and push an update into them and change their hearts and cause them to see. So I always end that talking about Look at Christ and help each other to look at Christ because looking at Christ is what changes you and then enables you to live with this other one in a room with him and not kill him. So the first time I'm preaching this gloriously, I'm talking to people this far away from me. So she's standing here. This is her head and this is his head. And I'm talking about this and I'm talking about God chose you despite you. God chose you. Why? Because he loved you. Why did he love you? Because? Because me? No, no, because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. He chose you because he loved you. He set you apart and made you his because he loved you. Despite who you are. I'm preaching this at her wedding and she starts to weep. Tears of joy. And then I start to get teary-eyed and then he starts to get teary-eyed. Not because we're talking about isn't love grand and isn't he wonderful and isn't she beautiful and isn't, but because we're talking about Jesus' electing love and the download is, is running, the little clock's spinning, and the download is running, and she's being changed, and he's being changed. I'm being changed, I'm talking about it. The need for all of us, when we live up close and personal with someone else, and we are to do so, the need for all of us is not to find people who aren't challenging and not to avoid them, but to step right up and seek to be their servants. How? By looking up. May God pour into your soul this truth. You are His, chosen by Him, beloved by Him, secured by Him, forgiven of everything by Him. 
You are safe and secure, and He is glorious and awesome. And this time in this place has said, you're mine, and I'm going to use you. Go. If you just try to go without looking up, you'll fail. But looking up, you'll go. Is that easy and simple and, and momentary and once and done? No, 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 no. It's always stay connected. The downloads are going to keep coming. Stay connected. Continue to set your mind on things above. Set your mind on Christ where your life is hidden with Him. See His coming. And until He comes, see the present where you are His for Him and for others. Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us in our failing. Thank you that you have mercy on us in our failing. Be patient with us in our shortcomings. Thank you that you are patient with us. Forgive us. Thank you for your forgiveness. We could go on doing that because we're never going to get around you. You've covered it all. You're God. We need compassion. You got it. We need love. It's there. You are our life. Fix that in us. Encourage us and change us with that truth and then send us out as servants of yours into this community and into the broader community all around us to show what it's like when you remake humanity and make us again like you. Do that, please, Lord, for your glory and for our good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.